Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with a very bright light. Fancha Traore is a young student and co-founder of the Sadie Collective. She's a graduate student of business and public policy at Yale University currently. And she's got a very, very fascinating story about the Sadie Collective. I guess I can, first of all, welcome. Thanks for joining me. And secondly, tell us about Sadie and what the collective is doing. Thank you so much, Rob, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, overall, I am so thrilled to be here with you. The Institute for New Economic Thinking is one that has a lot of alignment with the Sadie Collective. So a bit about me, I am currently a dual degree student at Yale University, pursuing an MPP and an MBA. And I am also co-founder and CEO of the Sadie Collective. The Sadie Collective was founded in 2018 by me and my co-founder, Anna Gifty Apoku Agderman. And when we met, we were both feeling racially isolated in the field of economics. So she was at University of Chicago for a summer program and exploring the field of economics when we first met and I had just finished the AEA summer program, which is the American Economic Association summer program, which seeks to diversify the economics profession. And as we were starting to navigate the field and the space a little bit more, we were seeing that there was a huge lack of diversity and in particular, a dearth of black women. And eventually she and I went together to Philadelphia to the American Economic Association's annual meeting. So it's the largest gathering of economists on an annual basis. And while we were there, we heard from Dr. Rhonda Bunche Sharp, who is an economist who was president of the National Economic Association at the time, which is the organization for black economists. And she shared that the rate of black women studying economics on the undergraduate level from 2009 to 2014 was actually declining. So her exposing us to that data and that information, and us being black women in the field, we wanted to get a sense of, okay, well, for those who are ec economists and who are studying in this space and who have had successful careers, what guided them towards it? Why is it that it looks and seems as though black women are actively avoiding the economic space? Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's, you know, there's a kind of fork in the road type question or with a name like Robert Johnson, the old blues singer, I call it the crossroads. But uh, in this case, you could say people are discouraged about economics because it's not relevant. They might get a business degree rather than economics because they think it's out of touch, too abstract. The other is it's very interesting, but it's like climbing uphill because they don't treat me like they do other humans. What, what do you think was at the core of that, that discouraged non-participation? It's definitely both of those and also other pressures that exist outside of actually being in the undergraduate setting and that are informed by America's education system and so forth. So before I get into that part of the conversation, let's start with what you've shared. So one, economics is not being presented in an interesting and exciting way. For my own self, I took an intro to economics course and in general, the way the course is structured and it is laid out, it's done in a way where you're talking about ideas like ceteris paribus, considering all things equal. And when you bring that sort of approach to people of color, people who have marginalized identities, and you're now suggesting that we should just assume that everyone's the same when their realities and their lived experiences show something different, it brings up this question of, well, how can I use this for any type of good? But it's when those groups are exposed to 
that material in elective courses that they get really excited about the possibilities of what economic tools can be used for. So for my own trajectory and my own experience, what has happened for me is that I went to Princeton where you studied for econ for a summer and there I met a policymaker who shared that she was able to end a food desert in Harlem where I grew up through using economics research. And it was that experience and that moment for me where I was like, okay, this is a tool that can really affect change for groups of people. And that's when I said, okay, I am going to go back to Howard University and I'm going to have a second major of economics. At the time I was studying political science and concerned with questions of politics and how politics shapes our reality. So this idea of systems was one that I was always fascinated by systems, whether we're talking about uh, the New York area and these systems that we're seeing are structuring the way our realities are and leading to segregation and leading to the experiences of groups of people to be very distinct and different. Um, so that was what I saw in, in New York, growing up in Harlem, growing up in the Bronx. We would be in Harlem on 100th Street and then just walk um, a little bit beyond that towards 96 and it was like a whole different world. So I had these questions about why is this the case? What is going on here? And it was that course that really helped me to understand how economics can be used as a tool for change. So that first point that you brought up, economics being interesting but not being presented in an interesting way, is a trend that I have experienced, um, but also that our members have shared with us through some research that we've done and data that we've gathered that coming into economics was almost like something that they stumbled into. And it was because they had a conversation with someone or they read a book or, but it wasn't necessarily their intro to economics course for the most part that led them there. And then additionally, some pre-doctoral students have released some research that show that one-fourth of those who are going into PhD programs, uh, many of them um, are individuals who have a parent who's an economist. So that shows you how that exposure that they've had through their own um, families sort of create this in-group of individuals who continue to go into the economics profession. And when you have numbers like four black women getting a PhD in economics on an annual basis, this makes it difficult to break into that field. And that really shows the impact of the role model effect. So being able to meet people who are economists and who have experiences that are similar to you, and that is part of what we're trying to do here at the Sadie Collective, and not trying, but are doing, with the programming that we expose our members to. We're exposing black women to economists who are also black women and they are sharing about their experiences and their journeys and that is inspiring a generation to now pursue the field. And then on the other end, barriers to entry are a huge issue for why we don't have this diversity in the field, which sort of ties to that study that I mentioned earlier. So what we're seeing is that when it comes to going into the economics field, there is a lot of math that's required. So for someone like myself who studied economics in her senior year and did not have as much of the math exposure, I needed to do a program like the American Economic Association Summer Program and then even go ahead and work at the Federal Reserve as a research assistant and take some math courses to even be eligible for some economics programs. And with that happening and quite a few undergraduate programs not really driving that point home that math is really important for pursuing some of these institutions then that keeps people out from continuing to go into the field so that lack of information so yeah so there's the reality of how economics is taught there is the lack of role models in the field and lack of representation and there's also the barriers to entry that make it difficult to continue to go into this field and to explore how you can use it for good. So those are some of the ways that we see economics continuing to beget what we're seeing currently, that lack of diversity. And you talked about barriers to entry. Those are preconditions for feeling like you can navigate through the coursework. 
What about barriers to promotion upon exit having successfully completed a degree? Is that a source of discouragement yeah, as well? Yeah, so barriers to promotion are also an issue that exists in the economic space. And you have entities a part of the American Economic Association that try to address that with uh, their organizations that look at uh, diversity in the in tenure in economics, DITE, which Rana Vanshay-Sharp has had quite a role in. You also have quite a few programs that are seeking to address that issue, but as the research of Dr. Lisa D. Cook and my co-founder Anna Gifty have shown, the reality of the economic space is still very similar to what Dr. Sadie Alexander experienced when she went into the economics field, and that is silence when it comes to the issue of racism and also a lack of actually shifting the reality of the economics um, discipline with with having diverse individuals in the field and so the research that Dania Francis um, Sorry, it was actually Dania Francis and Anna who wrote that piece. And the, the research that they show is that there is a severe lack of citations about how race comes up in the world of economics. And this is a reason why people would then be deterred from the field. If there is no substantial naming of how race informs our realities, why would I now be interested in using the math to make that case? when there is no acknowledgement of just how people really experience the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what they call in uh, microeconomics the utility function and preferences is some kind of icy abstraction with no texture. And it's not born of the context, the fears, the injuries, and the aspirations of people at a point in time. There, there's no institutional, you know, we call it, I guess I'll call it texture again. But, uh, but I think that I think these are very important things. Now, Sadie Alexander didn't stay in economics. She raised some concerns that are, how would I say, almost timeless, unfortunately timeless, I should say, that we haven't remedied some of the things that she underscored. But now, Sadie Alexander is known as someone who did this brilliance and then left and went to practice law. What was, what's the story there? Why did she shift gears? Great question. So Dr. Sadie Alexander was a fantastic individual. She switched gears into going into law after looking for jobs in the economics profession and not being able to find one and to really act out on her passion and her interest, which was seeing how the tools of economics can be used to uplift all people and namely the black community. She managed to graduate in 1921 during a time that was segregated in an economics department. Today, economics departments are still very problematic. To imagine that she did that then is like mind blowing. And then she still decided to, at University of Pennsylvania, to pursue a law degree and became the first black woman to graduate with a law degree from the University of Pennsylvania. And it's actually over these past couple of days that the Sadie Collective is celebrating her graduation from both of these um, programs. So in June 6, 1921, that's when she graduated with her economics degree, and June 15 was when she graduated from her University of Pennsylvania degree. So we actually have like a campaign right now that's going on that's celebrating her efforts in that way. And so what ended up happening was when she went to pursue that law degree, which also still tied to her interest in justice, is that she ended up going to work for her husband's law firm. But at the same time, she continued to speak to different crowds and audiences um, about her interest in economics. And she did this through the National Urban League. She did this through Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, which she is a founding member of, a black sorority that uplifts black women, and continue to still pursue those efforts. And one of the people who is doing a phenomenal job at continuing to uncover this legacy and all of the economic teachings that she's done is Dr. Nina Banks, who I know have been featured here a few times. And her book is coming out on the 15th of June. So I'll definitely be checking that out. And it'll include the writing and speeches of Dr. Sadie Alexander 
and continues to build off of the legacy of Dr. Julianne Malveaux, who's also a scholar who helped the Sadie Collective to uncover all of these incredible insights about who she is, the work that she's done as an economist, as someone who's pioneering ideas such as the American Federal Job Guarantee, which continues to be discussed today in Congress. So that's a bit about her trajectory since she went on to get her PhD in economics that she wasn't able to practice with and which is still an echo of the reality for black women in the economics field. Yeah, I remember in, uh, I think it was 2018, uh, a professor, Nina Banks from Bucknell University, came on to the uh, INET video screen. I think it was during the AEA meetings, as I recall. And she gave the most lucid six or seven minute presentation about, Shady Alexander was asking such sensitive questions about, for instance, why were so many more black women employed outside the house than white female equivalents. She was asking questions about why were black women employed in things that we might call our common causes rather than private sector just money earning. What were these things? And at some level, uh, I've always understood being in and around American politics that the most reliable turnout in the Democratic Party are black adult females. So they, they, they maintain a collective sense of responsibility under tremendous pressure. But it's, it's almost like Sadie Alexander is the beacon of the people who work as citizens as well as inputs to production and carry forth in a, which you might call a more wholesome way. We got to get some of that. We got to get some of that in the diet of the whole country. <laughs> and, uh, but it's just, it's, it's really remarkable. And, and Nina, like I said, in that seven minutes, she covered lots of things related to the history of this lady, the, the vision, the frustrations, and the inspiration. As, I mean, Julianne Malvo, who I worked with on the board of the Economic Policy Institute, very vivacious person. That's who she picked out to be a symbol of uh, what you might call under-recognized greatness. Mm -hmm. Yes, I 1,000% agree with everything that you're sharing. Black women are the backbones of our economy and society and have been since the start of the establishment of the United States of America. And it's unfortunate that they continue to be underpaid. And what we're seeing is that the shift that the Sadie Collective is looking to make is to really put those who are at the backbone of the economy at the center of actually informing it and shifting it. And we look to people like Dr. Julianne Malvo, we look to Dr. Sadie Alexander to inspire us to do that because what they have been able to do under the circumstances that they've endured is something that helps us to understand and recognize that we have to continue to keep that legacy going and make it easier for the incoming generation of young black women who are coming up in the world and who are going to ask questions about who came before us and what were they concerned with and what were they doing and being concerned with legacy is what we're looking to uh, push forward, continuing this legacy. And it's unfortunate that we find ourselves in this position where we are trying to improve a profession that we're going to go into. And we have discussed this with our open letter last year with the killing of George Floyd, where you had black people on the front lines and now, you know, in many of the roles that they are in, especially black women being called essential workers, essential to the economy. But where are those essential benefits that come with doing that type of work, right? Like health insurance. Let's talk about um, even protective care was a struggle to get at the start of the pandemic. And now you have these same black women who are fighting on the front lines and protests and trying to make the case for why black lives matter when there's a whole pandemic happening and they shouldn't have to be in that case. 
in that situation. So we actually made a call to economic institutions and said, hey, you need to say something. You need to do something about the field that you are in, one that informs policy, one that informs the realities of black women, and make the shift that is needed so that our lives and our humanities are honored in the way that they deserve to be. So we wrote that letter out and we addressed it to the American Economic Association, to the Federal Reserve System, and to the National Bureau of Economic Research, which are all powerful institutions that have the ability to shift policy and includes individuals who then serve on the cabinet for presidents and the Council of Economic Advisors and who help to steer the direction of the nation. And we said to them, it's time to center black women. And with the current administration, we're seeing a bit of a shift in some of the individuals who are actually being chosen to talk about policy and to implement change. So we're seeing individuals like Dr. Cecilia Rouse, who is the first black woman to chair the Council of Economic Advisors. We're seeing Joelle Gamble, who serves as special assistant to the president on economic policy. We're seeing Janelle Jones, who is chief economist at the Department of Labor. And these are all individuals who have been very concerned about the intersection of race and gender and how that informs research, economic research, and who also have the lived experiences associated with the research that they're doing, but then also have done work, Janelle and Joelle in particular, around labor union organizing and just have had their foot on the ground and had their finger on the pulse of what it is that is going on in the economy and how do we make the shift for care workers, essential workers, of which many are black women. And um, it's nice to really see, see this shift and this prioritizing of those viewpoints. Yeah. Well, I remember uh, in part of what Nina discussed, uh, it was about attention that Sadie saw, which is, as, she, as Nina described it, white men feel entitled to jobs. So when there's a downturn, the black people are laid off first. I grew up in the city of Detroit. The unbelievably beautiful history of the struggles of Detroit, the origins of the urban crisis in Detroit by Tom Sugru, establishes that long before what we all see as the devastation of Detroit, starting in the 50s, white employment was going up, white union wages were going up, and black employment was going down. They lost something like 130,000 jobs over that decade that Tom documented as you're leading up to the 67 riots and all of the social disruption and tension and then what they call white flight and everything else. But as Nina talked about, these senses of entitlement, the senses of uh, didn't it was, had nothing to do with your skills. It had to do with your color and who in stress got jettisoned first. And uh, I can't imagine how you could expect a majority black city like Detroit to cohere when, and you know, I grew up there. I was in the numerical minority, but in the power majority. I understood that white people ran the place. And uh, after I left, people like Coleman Young were brought in as mayor or whatever, but it, uh, it, it, was, it was the old school auto executives or founding families or whatever that were the core of the power structure. But I'm looking at that question, I guess, that polarization. What I saw, say, for instance, Martin Luther King was someone who was very strongly an advocate of nonviolence. My wife, before she worked with Planned Parenthood, ran a thing called Perception.org about the mind science of alleviating racial animosity. And, the, and I think, I guess I'm approaching a concept with you, which is when the frustration of black people after Martin Luther King was murdered and they had not made significant progress over 13, 14 years, say from 1955 to 68, militancy increased. People like Stokely Carmichael, the Black Panthers and so forth. And we experienced a counter reaction. In other words, that white entitlement didn't let go easily. 
Peter Tamman, famous professor emeritus at MIT, is writing a book. He's just finished, I believe, that'll come out on an INET imprint with uh, INET series at Cambridge University Press called Never Together. And it's about from reconstruction to the present, how every time anybody advocated for betterment of the black people, seeing it as unjust, there was a counter reaction that was equally strong. So I guess I, what I'm trying to dig into with that long-winded preface is how do you strategize evolving this system? No one lurking in the shadows is that unconscious potential of an adverse reaction. That's a, that, that's a, that's a big, I mean, if, if it was just you and I going into an auditorium and there's a debate and you win and everybody cheers. But some people don't react emotionally like they should, you know, based on the logic of the moment. And I'm curious, as you know, you and your cohort, you're right. But how do you, but how do you bring that correctness, that moral, how would I say, vision that is legitimate to a place where the obstacles turn around and agree and, and help right. you. Yeah. So what you shared around Stokely Carmichael's experience and um, and then the backlash that was then received, I and then also around like the entire um, just when someone presents a new idea being rejected, that is something that is not new and and that's what your story there highlights right it's not new um, the stresses that dr. Alexander faced are not new the stresses that we face as we're coming into the profession are not new racism is not new so in order to be able to steward this mission of shifting the trajectory and realities for a black woman it means having a vision for what the world can potentially be. So it means being audacious and constantly being in a space of imagination and being creative and creating that space for oneself to reflect and to disconnect from all of the noise, which was something that Dr. Cook shared during our first annual conference, block out the noise. That's something that I remember vividly because in this room, uh, black women who came from all across the United States and as far as Canada for our first conference in 2019 when we were really just making it up as we were going or how people say um, building the ship as you sail it. <laughs> um, so, so in that time and also navigating that experience, what was important for us was to constantly be thinking about the fact that this is not new and it's been done before in some shape or form and this idea of having to struggle with in, in the context of a really structurally violent society is a situation that we've inherited and it's our duty to continue to shift it towards better so for myself i also hold on to an understanding uh, that Dr. Julia Malveaux shared during our last conference in 2021 in February, so just a few months ago. It is know who you are and know whose you are. So, you know, there, there are these structures that we operate in, but there's also the reality that we don't have to bend over backwards for institutions that have not historically honored us and expect that they will today. And yeah, so, so that's like, um, some of the some of the experiences that I've had that I hold on to those conversations, those quotes, and those moments with our elders who have walked this path and who have continued to persevere in spaces and systems where it's it, it, it could potentially break you, but it doesn't. Um, and for some people it does, right? And so that's why we're having this conversation about economics because 
for some people it does in ways that means having higher mental illness rates, right? So with Naomi Osaka recently saying, I am not going to continue to participate in the French Open because this is taking a toll on, our mental, on my mental health. That was a very bold and brave decision for her to make. And for her to do so, it's making the room for these institutions to then say, okay, maybe we need to adjust. Uh, but at the same time, at the end of the day, she understands that she knows who she is and whose she is. She'll be fine. She knows that she'll be fine because she knows that the, the powers that be in the space of the French Open and in tennis don't necessarily govern her reality and her life. So I think having some solace in, in that, in these other ways that we preserve our well-being is really important to have in working with these institutions and so and thinking about the Sadie Collective and detractors that we've had and the noise that we've received um, it includes like just negative people on on websites whose name I will not echo on here because it does not deserve the airtime <laughs> um, and, and saying why do people want a handout this is not about a handout, this is about creating systemic change that is deserved for people who have been oppressed for, for, for centuries and arguably one of the most oppressed groups in the world if, we, if you even want to take it there in terms of the way um, African women also struggle um, to, to be able to have their full humanity realized given the impacts of neocolonialism. Um, and, and so overall, when it comes to continuing to take this mantle forward, what's really important is legacy, understanding your legacy, understanding that there have been many great women who've come before us and who have taken on this mantle and have survived and um, are individuals that we can look towards for inspiration. So that's one. And then two, having a strong sense of community. So the Sadie Collective has that community. We have each other. We have each other who tend to be the only ones in their economic institutions working together to really shift this profession for the better, whether it's through our innovative approach to research or through being able to gather at the onset of the pandemic and say, how are you? How are you doing? And how can I be helpful to you? And how do we get through this together? So uh, community has been absolutely essential. And also there are great allies out there who have supported our efforts and looking towards that as a element of hope and, a, and, a, and an opportunity for, um, for seeing this shift that we need to see more broadly for everyone in society. So on our advisory board right now, we have an even split of um, black professionals who have been supportive of the Sadie Collective from its very start. And then also allies who have been a part of our trajectory and who have been very invested in the efforts that we are making because they understand that if an economy is not working for everyone, then um, it's not working. <laughs> and so that's what we saw with the Great Recession, right? Um, that's what we saw, that's what we continue to see with how the economy is functioning today. It's still not great. So with individuals like Dr. Cecilia Rouse, who is very adamant about measuring the economy from a different lens than it has been previously, looking at the disaggregated unemployment rate and looking at it from the lens of race and gender, that is what continues to give hope around what progress can look like. Um, so, so yeah, I, I'd say in addition to legacy and community um, and our community of allies as well, it is seeing all of the signals that currently exist after the killing of George Floyd that kind of point towards a shift in a different direction. So for instance, Joe Biden mentioning in his presidential address that he was concerned with white supremacy. I've never seen a US president do that before. So um, yeah, these are some of the ways that keeps uh, one from listening to all of the noise that's out there around the economics profession, of which there are so many. There are so many of them. And at the same time, something that we also keep in mind at the Sadie Collective is that we want to diversify who's in the field of economics by making economics interesting and bringing black women to this field because it also is a way to obtain a lucrative profession 
we consider the reality that the institutions that we are now working with and looking for them to go into need to be spaces where they can thrive. So at the Sadie Collective, we're exploring consulting, consulting with these institutions to inform them on what microaggressions take place or what bystanders can do to improve the experience as a black woman in the field. So we also have a set of offerings that we give to the institutions that we partner with to ensure that they are creating environments that our members can thrive in. Well, I have a lot of different thoughts that you just churned up there. Uh, I, I, I have to say that, uh, you know, years ago when Occupy Wall Street was rampant, there were a lot of people that knew what they didn't like, but they didn't know what they wanted. And they, many of them hovered around the Union Theological Seminary, and a man who's been a great mentor to me, who I'll come back to in a little bit, named James Cohn, and uh, Serene Jones, who runs it, enlisted me to come over and teach a course called Economics and Theology. I, I call it means and ends, but uh, at any rate, uh, in that work, trying to understand how to overcome resistance, I found a really beautiful experience that I want to share with you and, and our listeners was A. Philip Randolph and Martin Luther King created something called the Freedom Budget for All Americans. And if you get into the archives and conversations and so forth, as you know, Dr. King was talking about militarism, materialism, and racism and his stand against the Vietnam War in the last three years of his life. Uh, became very important. But they created a budget which would have drastically cut, at the cut the military and all kinds of things as a model. And they called it the freedom budget for all Americans because Dr. King and Philip, A. Philip Randolph were concerned that if it was viewed as a budget just for the black people, not what all humans viewed as equal on the same plane should get, they could never inspire it to be enacted. And, People who tell me, who worked in the Johnson White House, people like Bill Moyers, uh, who's been a friend of mine for years, he said, Lyndon Johnson was inspired by the freedom budget. And in many ways, they got all the way to the top by, in that constructiveness. Second thought I had as I was listening to you is you, you hit a bullseye. I think Naomi Osaka is the most inspiring human athlete on earth in these last few years. Whether it's her grace when Serena Williams is fighting with the judges and has some basis for the fight, but it was on a day when Naomi Osaka just really beat her on the tennis court. But the way she was reverent about someone who'd been her role model and dignified, the way she came I think it was a year or two later to the U.S. Open with a hat on that said Tamir Rice. She's standing tall. She is an extraordinary person. And, and the, the fact that when I gave you that difficult question. <laughs> that was question, a hard question. You brought her out of the locker. That was amazing. That was brilliant. Then uh, before, I'm going to put one other thing on top of you because it's something that... that I hadn't thought about in years, but I mentioned James Cohn, who was very much a mentor to me. He understood the relation between music and arts and spirituality and all these things. But my favorite book in social science is his last book. No, excuse me, his second to last book. One was published posthumously called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And the book was about from a religious and theological perspective, the analogy between crucifixion and lynching was quite powerful. And he talked about how many experts, theologians, including famous ones at the Union Theological Seminary, turned their head the other way and didn't address this, despite being of the Christian faith and understanding the, the painful hideousness of the crucifixion. But what James did, and this is why it's my favorite book, is he went into the depths 
of what produces social change. And he talked about the courage of women whose sons and husbands were being lynched, who couldn't necessarily go to the sheriff or they might string them up too. And then this hideousness, people like Ida B. Wells, Fannie Lou Hamer, found ways to turn those awful rituals into something that had widespread disapproval and was not ended, but diminished substantially in its prevalence in the United States. And essentially what Cohn's message was is that people can live like an economist, the cost-benefit analysis calculation, but when you get to a place where things are so wrong that you would rather not live than go on living in that awful subordinated state and coping with it, the spring is coiled and the examples bring out the courage in other people and you and it's and it is in this instance black women who were the courageous leaders who brought about that how do I say repair of that awful circumstance and I, so I, I I guess I'm saying uh, from my vantage point the freedom budget for all Americans and James Cohn's book, Cross and Lynching Tree, what I learned at the Union Theological Seminary, I hope will be fuel to your fire. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And those are all women that we have to continue to honor. And as someone who my Howard University education would not have been possible if it were not for black women, I 100% understand and, and really hear what it is that you are sharing right now. Um, and something that I also wanted to share a bit about too is about the reality of navigating predominantly white institutions. And as someone who grew up in a heavily segregated New York City and then went to Howard University, which allowed me to reimagine and understand this idea of what it looks like when black people don't have to negotiate their identity and can show up as their full selves, I was put in a position where I was very empowered. I was incredibly empowered and constantly reminded about these individuals that you've shared, Fannie Lou Hamer. I was exposed to the art of giving in the black community from the woman of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated sponsoring my education to then go on to Howard University as a first generation um, student and also the child of immigrants. I was able to really embrace the beautiful dimensions of black American history, but then also this connection that exists across the Atlantic with, um, with the broader diaspora as well. And it, it's really incredible to see how the reach of the Sadie Collective is just as large as that too. So at our last conference, we had people attending from all across the world from South Africa, from Ghana, attending our conference because this connection that exists between the experiences of black women globally is one that is strong and has to continue to be honored. And it's amazing that we are able to have this entity that allows us to do just that. Um, so, so yeah, that was just a thought that I wanted to share there, but I really appreciate you um, knowing all of this history, because that's also not a mainstream um, reality, right? That people know the names of Fannie Lou Hamer, um, they know the names of these individuals who have helped to shape America and move it towards a direction that makes it a better society for us all. So yeah, I really, I really appreciate that you know that because I don't know many white men who can say, I know who Fannie Lou Hamer is. <laughs> <laughs> I would add Emmett Till's mother to that mix too. I think the way in which she was very courageous upon the death of her son was uh, also a very uh, constructive impetus 
Mm-hmm. I'll also just add that, you know, I, I, I think that black women are incredibly courageous. And I also think it's just very unfortunate that we have to be in this position to make this change that we did not create. Like the, the, the problems that we are inheriting, we did not create but we continue to rise to the challenge. And so when I went to the Federal Reserve and I was the only black woman in a room focusing on issues around international finance and looking at the US deficit, it was very clear to me that there needed to be a shift, right? So I had all these incredible women in my life who helped to inform my journey, whether it is my mother who was also an entrepreneur or the woman of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, or Dr. Cook, who I also met, um, and and so that's just to that's Lisa Cook. That's Dr. Lisa Cook. Oh, you're right. Yes, absolutely, and um, and so that's Dr. Lisa D. Cook, who is currently being considered to join the Board of Governors to help go- govern the United States economy. And this would be an incredible feat to see her at that kind of high level, especially for the United States at large, but also for black women who are looking to navigate this field and make an impact that helps to shape their realities to be better through the uses and tools of economic research. And so I, I was just starting to tell this story about being in the Federal Reserve and being the only black woman in the room and recognizing that this was not normal. And in fact, because I had experienced previous institutions, of course, which were not perfect, but which black women in leadership were normalized for me in South Africa at the African Leadership Academy, also at Echoing Green, which is an angel investing firm that focuses on social entrepreneurs. It was very jarring for me to now come to the nation's central bank and to not see black women in positions of power. There are a few, of course, um, like Dr. Well, she's not a doctor, she's a lawyer, Nicole Bynum, who works um, out of the Community Affairs Division, who I've learned a ton from while I was there. But the reality is that it, it, it was a feeling that I, would even argue um, is similar to how America has historically positioned itself with black and brown workers, security guards, um, secretaries, but when it came to positions of power, there was that absence and that dearth. And so my immediate thinking was, we don't just allow this to continue, we build community because that's the ethos that I grew up with. And so the Sadie Collective is that community for many women who are the only ones in their spaces. And we are really looking to not only just shift the reality of the profession for those who are research assistants like I was at the time or who are in a similar position to ourselves. We're looking to shift this for, for, for the long term. We're looking to have more high school students become economics majors. Over the past five years, as far as recent data allows, from 2015 to 2019, around 610 black women were studying economics, compared to 50,000 white men, compared to 30,000 white women. So what we're seeing here is that in this lucrative major that has incredible earning potential for these, for these uh, groups that they are not able to really um, engage in, in, in this ability to shape the economy. So economics is a degree that is in the liberal arts space and is one of the most lucrative, but it's been hidden from individuals who could really benefit, um, but also has meant that the actual economics profession itself has not been able to produce the best research that it could because it's not including all of these lived experiences and voices. So Dr. Bill Spriggs, who was my professor when I was at Howard, has actually testified to Congress about how the lack of diversity helped inform the Great Recession that we experienced in 2008. If there were more diverse economists at the table to help to 
see what was going on with mortgage lending and the subprime rates that were given, perhaps it would have been caught sooner and we wouldn't have seen the effects that we then witnessed across the economies globally, which I see through the data that I was navigating that quite a few economies have not recovered from the Great Recession, from the mistakes of the U.S.'s diversity issues. So there's a huge need and continued potential. And in our open letter that we addressed, we had very clear action items that institutions can take so that we don't find ourselves in this moment again. And we're working on actually following up on that because it was released on June 11th last year and seeing what it is that we've actually seen shifted. Additionally, um, in, in addition to following up on what that open letter included, we're also working on an index that helps to look at diversity, equity, and inclusion across all institutions and compare them to one another and see what type of shifts have actually happened and also whether they can learn from one another about what other institutions are doing, um, whether that's hiring a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert or building out a pipeline program that allows black women to thrive in this profession. Well, let me uh, shift a little bit to your origins. I'm inspired in listening to you today and you talk about growing up in Harlem. I live on the west side, just off of the uh, Central Park West at 105th Street. So I've seen some of the contemporary version of where you grew up. But how did growing up in Harlem affect you? Because I, I just know, you know, it was the seed of bebop jazz. Monk and Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie were up there. There's James Baldwin emanated from there. I think he's the most brilliant writer and... We'll come back and talk about him again in a minute or two because the way in which he approached the challenges mm -hmm. of overcoming these resistances is just unbelievable. And in his consciousness, and he was a black man, a gay man, and obviously tremendously gifted writer. And so I just put it simply with him, and my friend Ed Pavlik, who's a poet based in Georgia, wrote a book about him called Who Can Afford to Improvise, about how he started to infuse, he, I'll use a simple metaphor, he was like a great debater, a great stiletto fighter, and he would win. But he noticed that when he won, he didn't win, it just provoked counter-reaction. And he did an experiment after listening to an Aretha Franklin song, and that song, essentially it was called I Wonder. And he said, she speaks to the person and the people at the same time. She speaks to the heart and the context through her music. So he went to Ray Charles and he said, I'm thinking of changing the way I approach this challenge. And what he did was Ray Charles and he created something called the Hallelujah Chorus. Ray did it musically with metaphors, blues lyrics, what you might call uh, in code. And he did it literally. And they went to the opening night, which is at Carnegie Hall of the Newport Jazz Festival. They get there. Baldwin does his oration, spoken word. Charles does the same message. The reviews come out, everybody loves Ray and everybody's mad at James Baldwin. And so he decided to shift towards writing more fiction, writing plays, and using what you might call artistic modes of conveying the essence of his thought. And uh, I, I've always thought, like I, I've walked around places just to see where James Baldwin lived and stuff. I've always been in awe of him. But I've always been in awe of the intelligence I experience in Harlem. Just, you know, into, going to like t-shirt shops on 125th Street. And the people are creating the most interesting stuff. What was it like to grow up there? What was like, what was it like, I'm asking you two things. Grow up there, but what's it like to have, be in a place where people of color have such in, extraordinary minds and then come out of there into this 
white world cauldron that that you're now having to challenge yeah yeah harlem is a place that is very dear to my heart and anytime someone is going to new york i have loads and loads of recommendations for where it is that they should explore and I definitely emphasize supporting a black owned business especially in this moment where black owned businesses aren't getting the financial support that they need to continue to thrive in this pandemic and there have been some efforts that have been made but a lot of them have shut down and with the gentrification that's happening currently as well um, it means that Harlem is sort of fading away because of the the need for direct policy in order to actually preserve the sense of community that has been there historically um, over the past couple of decades. And um, so, so in, in thinking about Harlem, I think about 125th Street, I think about 116th Street, and those are places that I frequented often in my youth as far as um, being in high school because around then was when I started to go to high school in East Harlem. My family was based in the Bronx at that time and is currently living there now in Harlem. And so what, what I would see is this shift from uh, Little Senegal around 116th Street and then to uh, a predominantly Mexican and Latinx community around um, 116th as well when you go further down towards First Avenue. And it's a, it's a really beautiful place to navigate and I have had a really strong sense of community there with the work that I did for Assemblyman Herman D. Farrell who is now replaced by Al Taylor. And I've enjoyed actually using my current status as a student to uh, produce the research that he needs to govern, to govern as an assemblyman. So I have a lot of fond memories. I was sponsored by the Harlem YMCA as well in order to be able to go to Howard University. I did not know about um, HBCUs until I was participating in the Harlem YMCA and also um, sponsored by Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity brothers um, who were a part of the National Black MBA Association and took care of some of the youth in Harlem to be able to visit HBCUs and to experience that. So because of my experiences in Harlem, I was able to transition quite nicely to an HBCU where the experiences that I had there were beyond my dreams for what I understood could even be possible. And when I'm looking at the Sadie Collective now and the work that we're looking to do to get more high school students, black women thinking about economics, um, but then also thinking about how we expand their world and their understanding of themselves and their own capabilities through mentors and seeing people who are just a little bit further along than they are, undergrad students who are studying economics and being able to share what they've learned so far in their journey to them. It really, really excites me because I know how impactful that sense of community can be and how your trajectory is then shaped. So um, yeah, the, the rich history that's in Harlem and reading about it through the work of um, people like James Baldwin, um, reading about Malcolm X's experience and his autobiography and also identifying as Muslim, those were all um, pretty uh, impactful, pretty impactful for my own trajectory and my own understanding of how I can show up in the world and, and, and still be whole in a world that is really uh, adamant on you not having that wholeness, on you not being uh, that bright light that you have the have the potential to be so um, the sense of community is something that I really cherish and value and continues to be the thread in the experiences that I create for myself in any of the spaces that I go into but I'm very intentional about making sure that the Sadie Collective has well when I uh, listen to you I, there there was a song since the beginning of the pandemic that has been kind of my my INET anthem. And as I listen to you today, it, it's, I'm always, you know, my Holy Spirit is music and it comes and informs me. But uh, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes created a song that was sung by the artists who eventually went independent named Teddy Pendergrass. The name of the song is Wake Up Everybody. And the uh, lyrics, which remind me of the 
voyage that you're on is wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed, no more backward thinking, time for thinking ahead. The world has changed so very much from what it used to be. There's so much hatred, war and poverty. Wake up all the teachers, time to teach a new way. Maybe then they'll listen to what you have to say. Because they're the ones who are coming up. And the world is in their hands. When you teach the children, teach them the very best you can. And what I experience in, we've just met in this for the first time, but what I experience from the example I'm seeing today, who's someone who would be an example that I would be proud for my daughters to follow. And I want to encourage you, you know, the word courage, core in the Latin language, core comes from heart. Courage was to tell the story of yourself with your whole heart. Your age, meaning not your personal age, but the age in which you live with your heart. And to encourage is to applaud and support someone who's telling their story with their whole heart. I find your example very encouraging. Thank you for being with me today. I hope uh, we can have another session after not too much time passes and continue to watch the Sadie Collective and support it at INET. Thanks. Thank you so much, Rob. This is really a pleasure. And I have to respond with another quote that comes to mind when I hear what it is that you've shared. And that is Maya Angelou saying that you cannot practice any other virtue consistently if you do not have courage. So um, with that, I really do look forward to continuing to have a conversation with you. There are so many synergies between what you all are doing at INA and also at the Sadie Collective. And may courage continue to guide us to do the incredible work that we're doing. Great. Thanks, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing